Thank you so very much. Good morning. That was very poor. Let's try that again. Good morning. You did much better that second time. Almost as good as first service. Not quite, but we're getting there. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I hear the pain. Hey, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 down through verse 6. This arguably could very well be my favorite chapter in the Bible, arguably. This is an astounding chapter. The chapter sometimes has been referred to as the fifth gospel in the scriptures. It's a song, the song of the servant, five stanzas. And what we're looking at this morning is the third of the five stanzas, which in many ways is viewed as the epicenter of this entire song. What you are going to find here, written eight centuries prior to the time in which Jesus Christ hit the turf in the land of Israel, is that there are prophetic past tense verbs. In other words, even though written eight centuries prior, you're gonna find past tense verbs saying good is done. You're gonna be reading things here that did not take place in the time period in which this was written. When it talks about the piercing of the Messiah, that was not known in that time period. That was done by the Romans, which was subsequent to the time in which this was written. So what I'm saying now is that there's something extraordinary about to explode in front of your very eyes as you and I begin to explore now the very core of this five-stanza song that is directional towards the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 down to verse 6, and I'd love to read to you these words. Surely he has borne our, our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, what we want to do is to linger at the cross. We want lasting impressions. What we're looking for in many ways is transformation of the spirit. There are gonna be those, Father, that perhaps as they're looking at these verses say, I've never thought about this before. There are going to be those, Father, perhaps watching online who 
in the aloneness of their experience, or maybe they've got a family gathered around the screen. And they're prepping their hearts, their minds right now for what these verses are going to say to them in the immediacy of their own personal experiences. We'll be dealing with secular unbelief. We'll be dealing with religious unbelief. We're going to be dealing with those who are mature in the faith and those that are new to the faith. And somehow, someway, we're going to have to swing this pendulum widely that by the Holy Spirit's workings all across the spectrum, your truth is penetrating the mindset of those that are processing. So, Father, these moments now important. Prep us now for the bread and the cup to come. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. And we're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at what appears on the screen in terms of a painting, picture, entitled The Raising of the Cross. What I want you to begin to do now with me is to see not only how this relates to the text, but that how it relates furthermore to our lives. The painting is done by Rembrandt. The year was 1633. He was 27 years of age. She's using smoky tones. And he brilliantly now sets up contrast of dark and light. He wants us to be drawn towards what is happening on the cross. He wants us to see the dynamic, the personal dynamic of what's involved with the cross. There's Christ. You'll notice that Rembrandt has positioned him in such a way that he is above all the others at this point. He's being lifted up, but he's still on that cross. You're going to be able to picture, and you're going to be able to see now that there is a an individual who seems to be superintending what's occurring on this cross and those that are, that are positioning Christ in the upright state. He's watching. He thinks he's in control. He's not. But there's someone else here I want you to see and spot. My word. You see that man at the foot of Christ's feet, at the feet of Christ? What stands out in your mind about him? He is not dressed like someone of that time period in which Jesus Christ lived his earthly ministry. No. This is the type of dress that someone might be wearing in the 1600s. More significantly, the painter is painting himself into the scene. This is Rembrandt. And what I want you to see here is that he has positioned himself in such a way that he's saying, my sins are responsible for Christ being on that cross. This is personal. This is real. But know who it is who's in the uppercase. 
Notice, notice who's in the lowercase. And notice here how he has positioned himself in such a way you and I are forced to see ourselves in this context and ask now, what is it that God wants to teach me here? We're dealing here with the subject of substitution. Jesus is not our supplement. Jesus is our substitute. He's not an addition to our lives. No. He is to be central to our lives. As the very gifted expositor John Stott put it, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for men. You and I traffic with people who have substitution plans. They might want to substitute a better job than they think the one they have right now. Substitute one location for another. Always looking for something different. But when it comes to their relationship to God, there are going to be those in the universe who are going to simply say, I'm basically good. So what Christ did on the cross was unnecessary. But you see, what they're doing at that point is that they're substituting their relative goodness for Christ's absolute goodness. Their sinful goodness for Christ's sinless goodness. Then there are going to be those that say, I... I've done this, I've done that, I'll do this, I'll do that, and God will base it upon my achievements. This sort of individual looks at the, what Jesus Christ did on the cross and says, no, it's not so much that it was unnecessary as that it was inadequate. He needs my work in addition to his work. So what we're really doing is then listening to a different substitution plan where their sinful works are being substituted for Christ's sinless work. Both fail, you see, because they have not taken into account that God has ordained a substitution plan, the only exclusive substitution plan that is acceptable in his eyes, where the sinless one, 100% man, 100% God, two natures in one person, born in Bethlehem, came not to be merely a good teacher, though he was. Came not merely to be a good example, though he was. But he came to die for your sins and mine because he would take the perfect sacrifice to offer the perfect substitute. This is what we have going here for us now. As you and I are checking out three verses. Verse 4, verse 5. Verse 6, I want to turn to the text and draw for us this morning three aspects of substitution that you and I are going to see that will help us to prepare our hearts and our minds for the bread and the cup to come. And the first comes out of verse 4, and we're going to phrase it like this. That as you and I, as we reflect upon Christ's substitutionary work, should appear on the screen. Note, first of all, the burdens that were borne for us. The burdens that were born for us. Now, we start off here in verse 4, 
And notice that there is this sense of certainty. He does not say possibly. He says, surely, eight centuries before this occurs, surely, he says, not possibly, he has borne our griefs. Notice he, it doesn't say we. So many of my friends in the Jewish community, whether it be Yom Kippur, whether it be Passover, whether it be a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, Isaiah 53 is typically viewed as the suffering of the people rather than the suffering of the servant known as Jesus Christ. But what do you do with this passage where surely he has borne our griefs? Now I want you to look at that word born very carefully in verse 4. It is the very same Hebrew word which was used by Cain when being expelled from the region which he was in in order to simply be a wanderer on the face of the earth, when he heard his sentence from God for having killed his brother Abel, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Very same Hebrew word. Genesis 4, verse 19. I'm hanging with my Jewish friends. Maybe we've been to a synagogue together. Now I get to talk about what it is that they have processed. It's the, it's the Day of Atonement. Now, in Leviticus 16, you have one of the most extraordinary statements of what God has done in terms of substitution. So much so that in Reformed Judaism, they skip over this chapter on, on Yom Kippur and replace it with an ethical chapter of Leviticus chapter 23. Because this deals with the core of needing a substitute. And in Leviticus chapter 16, we are told in verse 22 that the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area known as a scapegoat. In other words, now, something has been placed upon this animal, and that animal is experiencing what it is as a directional sign towards what will be and who it will be that will bear our sins. So it was symbolic. It was directional. And it was to point them towards the sinless one still to come, Jesus Christ. He has borne our griefs. Now, the word here for griefs carries with it the idea of the objective side of suffering that Jesus Christ experienced on the cross. He has borne our griefs, and then for the subjective side, adds and carried our sorrows. But what I want you to see is that little word, our, which appears not once, but twice in what has just been read. He has borne our griefs. It does not read, he has borne his griefs, does it? He has carried our sorrows. It doesn't say carried his sorrows. What I'm arguing for from this text at this moment is that you are dealing with the ultimate form of substitution, not a supplement to our lives, a substitution for our lives. Jesus Christ doing this for us in our place. 
pastor friend out in Colorado. And he was talking about a, a driver, caribou wagon on its way to the market. Spotted an elderly man carrying a heavy load. And so they invited the man to jump aboard and ride in the wagon, and the man accepted. You can see where this is going. A few minutes later, the driver turns to see how he's doing, the man's doing, and to his surprise, he found that this elderly gentleman was straining under the heavy weight he'd been carrying because he had not taken the burden off his shoulders as of yet. A lot of people like that. They have professed faith in Jesus Christ and still want to carry the burdens of prior to putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I want to say to you that your shoulders are not big enough. The weight's too great. There needs to be a transference of the load. And the load was carried at the cross of Jesus Christ, objectively, subjectively. He has borne our griefs, objectively. He has carried our sorrows, subjectively. And that deals with a sense of loss that we experience emotionally in our lives. But there will come a time, as the writer in Revelation puts it, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, not pain anymore. For the former things have, you see, passed away. Thus far now, what you've spotted here is that in the Hebrew, the word he is in the emphatic place in the sentence. So with certainty, he, not we, but notice has borne, does not read, will bear. This is a prophetic past tense. We're saying good is done, even though this is written eight centuries prior. Does this amaze you? Does this grip you? Surely, certainly, he has borne our griefs, transference, that is substitution. He has carried our sorrows, substitution. And now you read on. What should be our response? What's the reaction? What's the crowd thinking? Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. What does this mean? What it means at this point is that the people in that time period when Jesus Christ lived had a, had a misunderstanding of what was happening on that cross. For you see the word here in, in the original language where it talks about the fact that we esteemed him stricken it carries with the idea of deserving a judicial sentence, one of judgment, a divine judgment. To put it simply, the one on that cross must have done something wrong. See? Now, let's figure this out. He's suffering on that cross. But you know, just as in the stage prior to writing this passage of Scripture, 
back in the days in which Job lived, he experienced misunderstanding from his supposed counselors, didn't he? We spent about a year studying Job on Sunday mornings. And his counselors had a different take on why people suffer. And it was known as retributive suffering. In other words, you are suffering because you did something wrong. Repent of it, and therefore the suffering will be removed, Job. The very same misunderstanding is happening here because they are too limited in understanding of why people suffer. Jesus must have done something wrong, you see, and so that's why this is being described here prophetically. But there are various reasons why people suffer. This is not retributive suffering, no. This is substitutionary suffering. It's not that he did something wrong, he didn't. It's that we did something wrong, you see. So now the idea is that just as in the case of Passover, Exodus 12, of Yom Kippur, Leviticus chapter 16, where God had sent, set pictures up of what substitution was all about, nonetheless, they were still so restricting their, their thinking as to why people suffering. This must be retributive. They, he must have done something wrong, when in reality it's substitutionary. It's that we came into this world as wrongdoers, and now Jesus Christ comes, dies in our place for our sins, so he has to deal then, not only with the suffering he's facing, but also with the misunderstanding surrounding him when it reads, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Meanwhile, he just continues to carry the burdens. What do you do about that? How do you practically address this? Steve Brown tells the story of a British soldier in the First World War. Lost heart for the battle, deserted. So trying to reach the coast of England for a boat that night. Ended up wandering in the pitch black, hopelessly lost. Steve writes, in the darkness he came across what was thought to be a signpost. So dark, he began to climb the post so that he could read it. And as he reached the top of this pole, he struck a match to see, found himself looking squarely into the face of Jesus Christ. For you see, he realized that rather than running into a signpost, he climbed up a roadside crucifix. Steve goes on to explain, then he remembered the one who had died for him, who had endured, who had never turned back. And so the next morning, soldier was back in the trenches. So often we want to escape. This world is a battleground, not a playground. 
But when we come face to face with the one being described here in Isaiah chapter 53 of verse 4, metaphorically speaking, we're propelled back into the trenches. We're willing to take on more battles still to come. For you see, the ultimate battle was already fought and won. For three days later, God raised Jesus from the grave. Lord, the writer puts it, I'm so discouraged, I don't know what to do. I have so many burdens, I gave them all to you. But you didn't take them, Jesus. Will you tell me why that's so? Jeanette, the answer is simply that it's because you won't let go. I found on my mother's refrigerator. Yes, sir. And so what we see here now is this extraordinary burden carrier objectively as well as subjectively. He makes our burdens his burdens, you see. So here's the substitute, not the supplement. And as we reflect upon Christ's substitutionary work out of verse 4, you've noticed the burdens that were born for us. But now we're up to verse 5, and I want you to see, second of all, the suffering that was endured for us. Now what interests us as we're following along, the verbs are all in the past, in a state of passive tense, if you will. They are passive verbs. I'm trying to find my wording here. Notice how it's phrased. Notice the but. But. He was pierced for our transgressions. Now, this word pierced is fascinating because during the time period in which Isaiah lived, there were no crucifixions. There was no sense of this when it came to matters of, of capital offenses. This was a Roman depiction. But the Romans had not yet appeared on the scene historically. This is more evidence as to why the scriptures are without error in the original languages, in the original transcripts that you see. It is because we see here that once again that we are being historically validated with a prophetic statement eight centuries prior. And then we ponder how Pilate oversaw such things. He was pierced, and notice the four hours, for our transgressions, you see. And furthermore, he was crushed for our iniquities. So twice now you got the four hours happening. Once again, we are dealing here with substitution. Back to the piercing. I remember when John Wooden was the gifted coach of UCLA's great basketball teams. Would be standing at the side and he'd be watching his team and you would see occasionally he'd put his hand in his pocket. And there was movement, and you wondered why. Well, Coach Wooden had a nail in his pocket. 
It was there to remind him that his Savior had died for his sins. He needed continual examples that in the challenges of life, there is one who took the ultimate challenge and died in his place for his sins. Now what we need are fresh reminders which the bread and the cup provide us with. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, the weight of all this, for iniquities. And then notice here, there is this next statement, upon him, not within him, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Now, the word chastisement carries with the idea of the penalty paid. Upon him was the penalty paid that in turn brings us peace. The Hebrew word shalom. We hop into a cab. Got to make our way, you see, to Jerusalem. We're in Israel. And what amazes me, whether you're in Tel Aviv or elsewhere, is that their, their music in the Middle East, in Israel in general, Jerusalem in particular, seems to be very focused upon the idea of shalom, peace. In Hebrew, the idea of peace carries with the idea of wholeness. In other words, they have experienced firsthand the Jewish people brokenness in this world. And there's this longing within Israel for wholeness in this world of brokenness. But I would argue that that's the case that you and I deal with day in, day out among people we traffic with. No matter who you're dealing with, they're dealing with their own sense of personal brokenness. And they're wondering if somebody might come along and fix this mess. And where can I find wholeness in the midst of my brokenness? Find your on-ramp. And then when you get on the highway of conversation, shift lanes as you're making your way towards the cross of Jesus Christ where true shalom is experienced, you see. And then you add this, and it's an astounding statement. With his wounds, we are healed. And you say, Gary, well, you knew the loss I've experienced, the sufferings our family has encountered, the challenges of life. I'm wounded, so where's the healing? It began at the first coming and is completed with the second coming. Don't transfer too much of the second coming into the first coming. Don't delay the first coming for the second coming. Understand how both of them are to work in tandem. Both have a surely. Both have a certainty. You and I are standing on a hill, 8th century B.C., alongside Isaiah. And on this first hill, there are two more hills stretched out in front of us. Let the second hill represent the first coming. The third hill represent the second coming. We're on the first hill. And you're looking at the cross of Jesus Christ, first coming. And what took place there when he died in our place for our sins, substitution. But then there's a, another hill still further on. That's the second coming. But it looks like they're all together. 
Because where we're standing, we don't see the valleys between each of the hills. It just looks like they're all one. This was the challenge that, that the people of Israel dealt with leading into the time of Christ. Where they didn't understand the valleys between the hills. There's a first coming, there's a second coming. And when Christ in his earthly ministry healed, it was another installment in his plan for wholeness, shalom. That's consummated, completed with the return of him, Christ, the second coming. It's your three-hill strategy for dealing with brokenness as you introduce wholeness in the midst of a very confused culture we find ourselves in. As we reflect upon what we see here, Christ's substitutionary work, you've noted the burdens that were born for us and for the suffering that was endured for us. In verse 5, we've spotted the four hours here. But now a third aspect flowing out of verse 6. Notice thirdly the confession that is made by us. What should be our response? I want you to circle, if you're using um, the Bible in front of you, the word all of you. Utilizing a device, find a way to highlight this. Because at the beginning, as well as the end of verse 6, you are dealing with the sense of allness. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. There's the collective nature of original sin. We came into this world as sinners by nature. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now, if you take the two we's, all we like sheep have gone astray, that deals with original sin. But when it says we have turned everyone to his own way, that deals with our individual sins as a result of original sin. We come to this world sinful by nature, and so then we commit sinful acts. We have turned everyone to his own way. You're on the Sea of Galilee with me. And there's this particular boat. They love to take people across and tell the stories of Jesus Christ and what was accomplished on the Sea of Galilee. And off in the distance, you see the Golan Heights. And you're pondering all the turmoil. And there's brokenness and there's this longing for wholeness in Israel. But the group on the boat, typically about 30 or so people, up to 40, we're singing songs, singing praises to God, beautiful music. And I'm thinking about some of the songs that were sung. The last 10,000 reasons. The sun comes up. It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass, whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O oh my soul, I'll worship your holy name. What struck me, there were about two, three minutes left before the boat came back to shore. The captain had run out of music, and so he decided to play one last song. I still will never forget it. I did it my way. 
you could just feel the spirit shift on the boat. We have turned everyone to his own way. God's way or our way. And Christ said, I am the way. But I want you to see in this last phrase three participants. Notice the initiator. It's the Lord. The Lord has laid on him. You see the Christ. But thirdly, do you see us? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of some of us. No. Us all. Tie the beginning and the end of verse 6 together. You bookended it. And now what you and I see here is the extraordinary evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ is our substitute, dying in our place for our sins and promised eight centuries before it even happened. One day they led me him up Calvary's mountain. One day they nailed him to a tree, suffering anguish, despised, rejected, bearing our sins. My Redeemer is he. Hands that healed nations stretched out on a tree and took the nails for me. Living he loved me. Dying he saved me. Buried he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, O oh, glorious day. And you see, you're back to the painting. And when you go back to that painting, you see the contrast between light and dark. You see uppercase, lowercase. And then you say, this was not meant for first century living only. Because here's a man who's dressed in contemporary clothing at the foot of the cross, positioning himself. And what he's saying is this, that's my substitute. As we look to the Lord in prayer, we'll ask the worship team to come forward. Father, we're thanking you now for being our God. We're astounded what we can draw out of just three verses of a prophecy that was, that was penned eight centuries prior. We see the nuances. We see the details. We're amazed that it talks about this matter of the piercing, alluding to the nails in the hand. Preparation for what Pontius Pilate would superintend. Through it all, Father, we see Jesus, we see us, and we see the fact that he's our substitute. So, Father, as we prepare ourselves for the bread and the cup, we want to be able to say to you loud and clear, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And for this, we give you the praise. In Jesus' name.